Hello and welcome to Airmic Talks, your fortnightly podcast from the UK's Risk and Insurance Management Association. We are coming to you after a hectic and tremendous week at Airmic Fest, our virtual conference that ran from 22nd to 24th of September. Please do remember that the Airmic Fest platform remains live and all the content produced and streamed can be re-watched if you register or log in again. The site airmicfest.com will remain live until March 2021, so do please make the most of it. There's loads of excellent content on there. Well, on with this week's episode, and in the next 20 minutes, we are going to hear from the free alumni of Airmic's 2019 Leadership Programme, which is delivered in partnership with the Business School at City, University of London, formerly known as CAS Business School. As part of the course, students must produce a dissertation on a risk or insurance topic of their choice, and the following guests' papers ranked among the top produced by last year's cohort. Later, we will hear from Natalia Todorova, Global Head of Insurance at Save the Children International, and Stuart Turner, Director of Risk Management Europe and APAC at Schneider Electric, on their respective topics of resilience in the face of climate change and parametric insurance products. But first, Hermione Winterton, an analyst at BGC Insurance Group, is going to talk us through her award-winning paper titled Diversity of Thought in the Boardroom, an Antidote to Group Think? It is important to note that Hermione, Natalia and Stuart all completed these papers in a personal capacity and they are not speaking as representatives of their organisation. Hermione, your dissertation for the CAS Risk Leadership Programme was titled Diversity of Thought in the Boardroom, an Antidote to Groupthink? And really addresses important areas related to good governance and the difference between what might be described as a box-ticking exercise and actually achieving real diversity in the boardroom. So to start with, I guess the, the real subject of this dissertation is cognitive diversity or more commonly known as diversity of thought. Perhaps you could begin by just explaining to us how is cognitive diversity different to identity diversity? I guess it's probably easier. So identity diversity is typically defined as someone's race, gender, age, ethnicity, religion or sexual orientation. Whereas cognitive diversity or diversity of thought looks more at the difference in what we know how we would look at the world, how we'd organise our thoughts, how we'd solve a problem, you know, it's, it's basically defined by the way we think. And um, one of the things that I wanted to look at in this dissertation is that actually, I think we sometimes assume that identity diversity is, you know, results in cognitive diversity, but you can actually have, you can have a very identically diverse group of people who think exactly the same whereas and likewise you can have a very sort of undiverse group who've come from very different backgrounds you know they've had different life experiences and so the way they think about something or approach a problem is very different so they would be very cognitively diverse. So in terms of if they actually achieve cognitive diversity and we'll come on to in a second how they can go about doing that if they do achieve it how will it help boards do you believe effectively address emerging risks? So I think businesses today obviously are facing an ever-increasing array of risks. And like, you know, we've experienced with COVID-19, many of these are really very difficult to predict. And so by having diversity of thought on a board, you can enable some breakthrough thinking and some better risk identification because you'll have a, you know, you'll have a group of diverse perspectives, which will enable a more challenging and robust discussion, which although 
it might take longer to have the discussion. In the long term, it will leave boards with a deeper, hopefully a deeper understanding of the risks they may face, um, a better solution and the possibility of new risks that they may not have even considered previously. And um, in the dissertation, one of the pieces of research that I review is by a lady called Juliet Burke. And she highlights that in reality, most complex problems or risks need to be reviewed from through six different frameworks. And those she lists those as being evidence, options, outcomes, people, process and risk. And through her research, what she identifies is that in most instances, people only think to review a problem or a risk through the outcomes and options lens, which means that you know, they miss the opportunity to think about these things from through the other frameworks, which are equally as important. So I think that the danger is that if a board doesn't have diversity of thought, the ability to identify risks may be curtailed, because although the board may look like it's acting like a group, it will be thinking like an individual, and not no single person has the ability to think about something from all the different frameworks required. So you you could end up being blindsided by a risk that no one has considered previously. So I guess when it comes to identity diversity, whether or not the appetite or motivation is actually there to achieve it is, is, a, is a different debate. But I think it's probably fair to say that if, if boards want to add a degree of identity diversity to their, to, to, or organisations want to add a degree of identity diversity to their board, it should be relatively straightforward exercise in doing that because you, you know what you're, you're looking for to put it in relatively crass terms. In terms of achieving diversity of thought, I imagine that's probably a little bit harder because you probably need to dig a little bit deeper into potential appointees to a board uh, or to senior management to do that. So how do organizations go about finding the right blend or mix of people to achieve that diversity of thought? I mean, I think it is a difficult challenge and one that boards are starting to look at now. I think historically and possibly still now, Boards use antiquated recruitment processes to to get their um, board to come across their board members, whether that's a nomination from an existing board member or a contact through the business. And actually, it's very difficult for as an individual to say I'm a diverse thinker without because you may be you may think you're a diverse thinker, but in actual fact, you may not. What we think we are and what we actually are is often totally different. And so I think there's two there's two things. I think they should I think there should be more psychometric testing to, to assess how prospective board members think. And but I think there's a reluctance to do that because quite rightly these people are, you know, at the top of their game, they're um, experts in their field. And by the time they've got to the point of being invited to a board, they are pretty sure that they know what their skill sets are and they're and they're sort of less inclined to want to do a psychometric test. So um, that's the first thing. And the second thing is that we tend to recruit people as an individual. And actually even if you recruit somebody who has got who has got good cognitive diversity, they may have cognitive diversity on one group. Well, they may bring cognitive diversity to one group, but not to another. And so really, it's about changing our recruitment process to look at how somebody fits into a group, not as how they what they can offer as an individual. And the other thing that I think is really important to achieve, you know, if you get to the point where you've done the recruitment on the basis to achieve diversity of thought, the other thing that you really, the boards really need to have in order to reap the rewards is they need to have a culture that enables these individuals to be confident to offer 
their perspective on a board because if you've got a culture that is very you know where people don't feel comfortable to offer their point of view then you're basically you're not going to reap the rewards of diversity of thought and you're still going to you know the the leaders or the chairman's opinion is still going to prevail and one of the you know and that's one of the things that I look at the dissertation is in the dissertation is the example of what happened on the Enron collapse and that was largely you know thought to be because of groupthink on their board and the culture there was very domineering um it's all the same people you know all the same kinds of people no diversity of thought and actually you know that was what led to such a quick downfall because everybody obviously was too scared to put their hand up and suggest that something was not right Next up, we have Natalia Todorova, whose paper was titled Dealing with the Global Resilience Challenge Resulting from Climate Change, the Critical Role of the Risk Professional. Natalia, in the the preface, uh, you mentioned a visit back to Bulgaria and a region not far from your hometown that had been impacted by severe flooding. What did this experience highlight to you and and why did you find it relevant for the paper? This visit for me was um, much more important than I thought it would ever be because it sort of turned into a, a mission, a personal mission for me. Firstly, the, the reason why I, I went um, to visit that town was because there were a few things that were really bothering me. Even though I've not lived in Bulgaria for the last 20 years, I still follow the news. And I knew, I heard obviously on the news um, of the severe flood back in 2014. And there had been a couple of years um, between the, the floods and uh, my visit. And like like with everything else, things had gone quiet. And I just didn't know what had happened to these people or to the um, buildings there and, and just really wanted to see the, the, the long-lasting impact. In my, um, in my job, um, I've come across quite a few uh, papers which discuss the long-lasting impacts um, on on people and societies um, following a a disaster like this. So I thought I was prepared um, and I I really just wanted to see for myself. But I guess what what my conversation led me to to learn, I wasn't necessarily prepared for. The other thing that really bothered me was the um, low insurance penetration in Bulgaria significantly lower than other European countries. So again, I was hoping to find some good examples. I was hoping that some of the people I will talk to or, you know, will say, yes, we were insured and and everything happened much quicker. You know, we got our losses uh, recovered very quickly. Again, this this wasn't unfortunately um, the case, and and the other thing was just really want to see the infra- infrastructure because where, where there's a, a natural disaster, it's not just one person's property; it's it's many people's houses, obviously, but uh, also businesses and and the, the wider infrastructure, you know, the schools, the hospitals, so all this. So I really wanted to see as well how the government has actioned this and whether there's been any EU funding um, which has helped, and and it was really I was quite positive initially seeing all the reconstruction works and it wasn't until I actually spoke to a couple of ladies who were affected quite severely in fact um, that I really understood the the, the severity of, of this episode for them because while I could see on the face of it things were recovering and you know new buildings glossy buildings a, a lot of boards um, saying that there were EU funding there was EU funding helping with the with the infrastructure recovery. The, what really, really astonished me was um, the fact that they said there were only two people that passed away as a direct result uh, of the floods. But six months later, 
pretty much every house, every every family that had been affected lost a mem- lost a member of the of the family, and it, it wasn't obviously directly linked to to the flood, but the stress and and the um, just the the ongoing the slow recovery process um, really impacted on on the mental health of of those people, and it, it it's a, it's really for me it was really sad because for everyone who's not been affected it, it's an event you know it's not close to home so yes we hear about it we think about it for a few minutes and then we forget about it but for these people I just realised how long lasting these effects are. You talk about kind of those more personal experiences and and kind of almost well, I guess what I might refer to as the kind of the grassroots impacts of a crisis like uh, a severe flood. But of course, this paper examines the need for a holistic approach, looking higher up to to disaster risk management and the impact that can have. What do you think such a holistic approach to this kind of localized disaster management looks like? So for me, the, the way I've approached the paper is that, to, to me, um, it's very clear that disasters are happening. So it's not a question of if; it's a question of when and how how hard it will it will impact um, the people and and the businesses for that matter. Um, so for me, it's all about preparedness and and how um, you know do we know what to expect? How how much can we envisage? And in some cases, we can. We know we know if certain areas are prone to earthquakes. We know if certain areas are prone to floods. So these are things that we don't have to guess. We we know um, and, um, and and there's data which could tell us even how um, you know how likely it is to happen in in any given period of time. So it's all about preparedness. It's all about knowing exactly what to expect and how to deal with it, um, who will be involved, having clear roles and responsibilities and, and uh, not duplicating efforts and, and making sure that funds are allocated as they, they should be and, and not wasted on you know recovery when in fact we could spend money on preparedness and on transferring some of the risk as well. You propose the introduction of a national chief risk officer uh, in, in the paper. How important and possible do you think it is going to be to d- disconnect such a role and, and risk management of a country or state more broadly from political politics and, and political interference? To answer your first question, how important? I think it's hugely important because the risks and and um, the, the activities that I have described in the second part of the paper that they're not novel they're not unique you know there's nothing um, nothing revolutionary about them um, that these are things that have happened and continue happening so I, I think it's really really important to actually break the silos and and, and bring everything together for long-lasting impacts so to me it, it's hugely important that there's there's a number of activities that there's many things happening all over the world. It's a matter of coordinating and bringing out those good examples, breaking the silos and learning from experience. Maybe, you know, things that are happening in one part of the world would still be applied in another part of the world where where there's similar risks. Um, How possible? Um, Again, I think this, it will really depend on each nation, each state how how they make this work but we we um i think it's widely known and, and accepted that there's a, a level of short-sightedness in, in politics because of the um election cycle four year election cycle so for us to deal with a problem which is so complex like natural disasters and, and climate change we need a much more long-lasting view and for us to overcome this we need 
I believe, um, an administrative role, which is not linked to any election process or to any party, which handles, brings brings all the, the different stakeholders to, to, um, to the table and moves on with the agenda, regardless of the political climate. Moving nicely on from the topic of climate change, our final interview is with Stuart Turner, who used his dissertation to explore the rise of parametric insurance products and asked if they would remain largely constrained to weather-related risks. Before outlining some really interesting uses of parametric triggers, Stuart first gave us a brief outline of what parametric insurance is and how it differs from traditional insurance products. Parametric insurance really tries to change basis in terms of the way of indemnifying its customer. So on a normal insurance program, we think about a claim and a loss, whereas on a parametric program, we, we tend to think more about the event, something that happens and that creates a financial payout. So how does it work? First of all, you need uh, an index or a metric that can be independently assessed. These can be things such as the category of uh, storm. It could be the amount of flood water, anything that is independently verified. Secondly, we then need a threshold. So probably if we think back to a normal insurance policy, this would be a deductible. Um, So the index, the metric has to exceed this threshold before the policy can be triggered. And then thirdly, we have this predetermined amount that is paid upon the breach of that threshold. So you have those three factors that come into a parametric placement. And just very briefly, uh, some sort of differences between the traditional and parametric programs. So we talked about traditional, it's an actual loss, whereas parametric is an event. On a parametric program, the payment is made once the event has happened, whereas on a traditional policy, the loss has to be assessed. On a traditional policy, the the claim is subject to the terms and conditions of the program. On a parametric, it's subject to the index or the the parameter that is set. Perhaps one of the real benefits of the parametric program is the speed of payment. So because there is no need to assess the claim and the actual loss sustained by the customer, the payment following the event can be done reasonably quickly. And certainly a lot of the sales literature talk about these claims can be paid within 30 days. And similarly, because it is set up to for, uh, specifically for customers, you can be very creative, you can be very uh, bespoke in terms of the way the programs are set up. So rather than following a, a traditional policy that may be on a, a wording or a language that is fixed by the insurer, you can decide how you want the program to be. So it can be very flexible. And it can be, an example of that, it can be over many years. So it doesn't have to be rigidly stuck to a, an annual program. So that's some of the, the main uh, changes that we see between the two. Just one final point is difference really that a lot of people see with parametrics is where we talk about the saving in time in terms of post-event or post-loss, that work has to be done pre-loss. So there has to be an assessment provided to the insurers and they have to underwrite the event to understand that the customer will suffer a loss and it is uh, indemnifiable. So a lot of work has to be done beforehand, and sometimes that can be one disadvantage of the parametric programs is the, the complexity that needs to be done before placement can be made. Why did uh, you want to examine parametric insurance in particular and, and discuss whether they are only appropriate for weather-related risks or not? Last year, I was uh, one of the cohort that undertook the AMIC risk and leadership training course, and part of that is you need to do a research project. And when I was thinking about the topics that I wanted to consider doing, parametric came up. And I certainly was aware of parametric 
policies being in existence. I've certainly seen some of the marketing around that area. And insurance can be quite traditional uh, in terms of its approach. And so a new approach was interesting to me to see if it had applications for my organization. And then when it started to explore it, it was very clear that the examples given and the case studies provided were always in the utilizing a weather event being the trigger for these for these parametric programs. And certainly when you read the literature, it said it doesn't have to be weather related. But every time I saw one of these, it was weather related. So I started to see a sort of a strange condition there. And when I started to look at the risks in my organization, whether parametric could be applied, it was clear, certainly during the discussions I had in inter- my internal stakeholders, that weather-related risks were of lesser concern to us. Yes, we have some NatCat exposures, but the sort of some of the more usual weather-related parametric triggers didn't apply to us. So I thought I'd take the opportunity to research a bit more about the parametric process to see did it have to be weather-related, and to see if there were other avenues available for this type of program. Yeah, interesting, Stuart. I, I definitely can see exactly what you mean regarding the marketing and some of the more high-profile use cases that are out there regarding parametrics of the kind of the, the weather and uh, weather-related risks are definitely well documented. You did pick out though in the dissertation some really interesting examples of parametric triggers that were not weather-related, and, and some of these are really really interesting. Could you could you maybe choose a couple to to expand upon for us? There was a number, so a number of different triggers that could uh, that were I, I managed to find where products have been created, and so perhaps one to start with would be a product that Aon has uh, developed. I, I probably should say that when this research was done last year, so this is these are all in a in a different a different time, but um, yeah. so they have one uh, that looks at. Uh, certainly footfall. So trying to measure whether a shopping center or retailers in general, one of their metrics is to to measure footfall. And so if because they can measure that, they can see if there's been a drop. And so the drop in footfall could be, it could be down to weather. So I think it's there's a lot of press coverage when there's either seasonally high or seasonally cold weather that people go shopping less, but it could be something else. So it could be uh, a bogus terrorism alert. And so I think there's some examples where uh, some false alerts in terms of concerns that there might be a terrorist event happening, uh, maybe in central London, and therefore there's no tra- footfall traffic. So, And if there's no traffic, then there's a loss of earnings. And so you can see how they can build up, that up. So that was one. Um, and linked to that same product from Aon was another for, for hoteliers in terms of whether they, they have metrics in terms of measuring the revenue per available room. And so if there was an event, again, you can see where the weather-related one would work, but it didn't have to be weather-related. Again, it could be terrorism. It could be something else. So that was one. Another was on flight delay. AXA did have a product last year when I was looking at this called AXA Fizzy. That no longer exists, and I'm not entirely sure whether that's because of the environment that we're in today and the lack of travel or whether there was no commercial appetite for it. But that one was seeking to pay the travel delay uh, insurance, and it was rather than a traveler buying the insurance, going on their trip, then subsequently having to make a claim. You record your details, you put the details of the flights you're taking, price is given to you, you you buy the premium, and then using the the data that exists for flights, 
that if it lands late, then an automatic payment is triggered. And so there's nothing there for the, the insured has to do. They get paid automatically. So I thought that was quite an interesting concept in terms of you taking out this claim process, which can be so uh, infuriating and time consuming for, for customers. And then the third example I was going to give is and this very specific example that I found in Singapore, where, where around about 20% of pregnant women uh, get diagnosed with diabetes every every year. And so this product was designed that it has access to the medical records. So once that has been diagnosed and put on your medical records, then that generates a payment. And so I thought that was quite an interesting concept in terms of making the process very smooth in terms of, of arranging the insurance and then making a claim payment. But also there's an interesting concept in terms of being having access to records. And so I know that would Obviously, there's some protections that would need to be in place, but by, if that can be managed, then I thought that could even be extended to somewhere, for example, like life insurance, where I think the statistic I found was around in the US alone, there's somewhere in about $7 billion of unclaimed life insurance programs. And so whether people know about them or have the documentation and all, all sorts of reasons that would prevent somebody from making a claim or delay them from making a claim, whether that these sort of parametric triggers using blockchain technology can uh, speed up the process and make people feel happy about insurance because it does what it says. Yeah, really interesting. I think that the particularly the uh, AXA Fizzy product, which you, you referenced regarding kind of flight delays, which yeah sounds like it's it's not going anymore. But I, I know personally that that could easily work as well just for trains, couldn't it? I mean, I think sometimes that some of the uh, compensation procedures for if your train is a certain amount of time late, pretty painful. And you've got to take a photo of, of you know, kind of the clock at the station and things when you arrive. Exactly, and that could, that yeah. could easily be streamlined by some, this kind of a bit more intuitive process that and particularly the fizzy one it it takes away the need to check whether it was excluded or covered or and things like that so the example i i put in my dissertation for the fizzy was um the drone the sort of drone or potential drone that was uh, closed gatwick last year or maybe the year before for a number of hours and days is that covered it doesn't matter it's, it's a delay and so that it really speeds that process up good example as well okay then so so lastly Stuart from from your research and analysis how do you rate the potential of parametric triggers in the marketplace and and will they become more commonplace do you think so I think the timing of this question is quite good because uh, as we record here it's the end of the um Emic Festival, uh, Emic Fest, I probably should call it. Certainly, when I've been listening to a lot of the presentations and seminars that have gone on, I think parametric has been mentioned in almost all of them. So we we obviously have the hard hardening market, and there's lots of discussion as to how long that will last, uh, what will change in the marketplace going forward. But certainly, it's meaning that risk managers and brokers are thinking of alternative structures to mitigate the effects of the increases in prices, the, re the increases in exclusions, the reduction in capacity. And so, again, talking to some of the brokers and underwriters that I spoke to doing the research, they've certainly seen an increase in inquiries. So I think it's it's becoming more and more common commonly known. They, they do reference, however, that it's um, the, the actual number of placements are yet to follow that same trajectory. So it'd be very interesting to see. But I, I think as people get to more familiar with this, absolutely, I think it's, uh, it's, it's definitely going to be more, more widely used going forward. 
Well, thank you to Hermione, Natalia and Stuart for being very generous with their research and insights into three really interesting topics. And I hope they have provided you with plenty of food for thought. If you want to learn more about the Airmic Leadership Programme, then please do go to airmic.com forward slash leadership, where you can download a brochure and fill in an inquiry form. Applications for the next programme beginning in 2021 will open shortly. As mentioned, the three papers discussed in this episode will be published in the 2nd October edition of Airmix Friday Reading List and feature in the next Airmix News as well. Stay well and see you soon. Mm-hmm.